I think one of the things that comes up every time there's an election year is this hand-wringing about whether we can trust the polls, whatever Mm -hmm. that means, trust it to do what, I don't know. People don't really know what bias is. They don't really know what sample size or sample design is. They don't know what a margin of error is. They don't know the difference between one type of poll or another. They don't know that there have been all these changes Mm -hmm. in method. And so maybe it might be nice to not have any hot takes about what the polls say and what we think they mean or what we Mm -hmm. predict is going to happen next. But instead, just kind of go, well, what's in here? What's not in here? Who they ask? Who didn't they ask? How'd they ask them? How didn't they ask them? And then like, should you get too excited about this? (laughs) Maybe. No. Yes. So anyway, so I I had a thought about that. But then literally, Stuart, my husband was like, you know, you should do a podcast about this. You should get Paul to do it with you. Mm. And then a few days later, he comes in uh, after walking the dog and he's like, it should be called cross tabs. (laughs) At which point I'm like, and here we are. And here we are. Welcome to Crosstabs, a podcast for people trying to cope with yet another most important election year in our lifetimes. I'm your host, Farah Bostic, and I promise that on this podcast, you will hear no hot takes, no partisan spin, and most importantly, no predictions. We're not trying to unskew the polls. We're just trying to demystify them. Joining me most weeks will be my friend and colleague, Paul Soldera, the quantitative research match for my qualitative sensibilities, and we'll try to explain why polls are designed the way they are to better help us all understand what a poll really says and what it really doesn't. Let's get started. That's how we got to here, Paul. And that's and then I emailed okay. you and you were very nice and said, sure. Right. <laughs> I would say always say yes oh, to you. Oh, that's why I like you. If only more people would do that. <laughs> I also was having a conversation with um, a friend of mine who was like, well, really, you're starting this thing as if you don't have enough to do. And then she was like, and you know what year it is? Mm. And I was like, it's an election year. And she's like, and you know what people freak out about in right, election right. years? And I was like, the polls, the kind of things I was you know, thinking about for stuff we could talk about are just even just this kind of meta conversation about the roles that polling plays in our democracy, what they're for, whether we think they're Mm. still good, either for the things that they're for or for just sort of democracy in general. Jill Lepore has gone on the record many times with feelings about whether she thinks polls are good for democracy. Nate Silver has generally taken a different position and Mm -hmm. everybody can have fights about it in between. And then I just think there's like some demystification Mm -hmm. about like, what the heck is a margin of error? You know, what, when I look at this, how, you know, yeah. I mean, are people lying or are they just misinformed? Are they doing this like performative Mm -hmm. response? If we're having non-response bias, people refusing to participate in polls, what should we make of that? What's waiting anyway? There was like a Wall Street Journal piece a few months ago that was like, waiting is bad. And I'm like, waiting is standard. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's very standard. So there's some things that are just like, maybe we could, you know, open the curtain a little bit and explain what some of these things are. And I have no predictions about what's going to happen because... Uh, if you want to hear my predictions, it's pretty depressing. Right. Yeah. That's my, that's my bias. No, they're interesting questions. I, I, I think I think if you start off with the one with regards to like what are polls trying to achieve or what they what are they? Like what do they do? I think we we tend to see a poll result and we think, oh my God, that's gonna be the outcome of the election. Yes. Because if the election the question is literally if the election were held today, you know, how would you vote? But of course the election isn't being held today and it's not being held tomorrow. A lot of times it's been held six months, you know, in the future. And so polls aren't really reflective of what's going to happen at an election. They're only reflective of what the electorate thinks about the political situation at that given moment. So lots can happen between a poll and an election, obviously. So I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of polls that are done really early on that try to, that try to be presented as kind of, oh, this is going to happen when really they're mm-hmm. not. And that those polls well before, you know, an election cycle has started probably aren't that useful, mm-hmm. I think, because there's, there's a whole campaign that's going to go on. It's going to persuade people one way or the other, and there's lots of events that are going to happen. So I don't really put a lot of stock in polling that's well, well, well before elections. I don't know if that po- kind of polling is really like that useful either in terms of, if you think about it, in terms of what it's, it's, it's general kind of like plus or minus on society, because... It, it probably just gets a lot of people worried on either side about what's going to happen when really, you know, it's very early on in the whole process. Right. 
So that, um, that actually is a thing I, I keep wondering about, because obviously, you know, American elections are, I think, a little bit unique in the world in that they seem to be constantly going on. Um, mm, and we don't yes, have any kind right. of regulations about when the actual campaigning can begin. And so in a mm. general election year, the kind of custom is that the campaign really begins January of the election year, because that's when the first primaries are held. Except that, of course, people had yep. to get on to the primary ballots in these states. They had to campaign. Yep. And we have now these large slate of candidates um, who start running in primaries, not right. every time and yeah. not every part, not every party. But, um, you know, like the Republican slate had had been quite large. It's now winnowed down a bit more. Mm. Um, but they've been having to qualify to get onto debate stages in order to get any kind of press yep. and all of that. And so we have polling then um, in order to qualify them to get onto a Fox business or CNN mm. or Univision or whatever debate stage. And also, yep. I think these campaigns are using it to try to give them some indicators of should they even try to compete in state X or Y? Where should they put their resources? Yes. All of that. And so I yeah. think that's the other thing is we've we've got yeah. national polling, which it feels like we've got a lot of. And then we have state yeah. level polling, which helps them make decisions about primary battles. And those don't happen very yeah. often. There are either places where they almost don't happen at all or they're very infrequent yeah. like the i think they only do that about once a month right. at most um and yeah. so yeah so there's and I, imagine, and I imagine resource that, allocation yeah. questions i guess and right. stuff like that yeah for, for, i think i think i think the, the the campaigns themselves will be doing polling it's not mm -hmm. public so i think that's i think that i think good use of polling for a campaign would be to do all that kind of stuff and to keep an eye on kind of where you are i mean if you were if you were Advising to a campaign, I think early political polling in lots of states and understanding where the candidate is is is, is a really good use of it. Yeah, but um, but early polling to predict the presidential election, you know, from the public's perspective, I think it's just like trying to trying to get some interesting journalistic, yeah, you know, commentary out <laughs> yeah. there. It's not really that useful, but for a campaign, I think it's very really valuable. Yeah. So maybe talk a bit about your because you you have done some political research in the US, but more in uh in, in yeah. where your accent comes from. Yes, more in New yeah. Zealand. So I was I, I used to do the political polling in uh a company called CM Research back in New Zealand. Typically you as a poller or as a research company, you would partner with one of the uh networks. Mm -hmm. So we would we partnered with one of the uh television networks and they would uh commission polls that we would do around election season uh, to kind of like indicate what the general gist of the election, where it was kind of going. And we do that relatively you know, infrequently uh, in between election years, but very frequently, almost like once a month or a couple of times a month as elections got closer. There's kind of like this standard research that you do with, um, you know, the clients kind of that we have when we do quantitative, qualitative research. And there's a standard way you would run that kind of research. Polling always has many more layers of sophistication built into it because you're trying to get the most accurate result as possible. And you're trying to understand really, you know, where the electorate sits with regards to the two different parties and the candidates. And it's public information uh, that's going broadcast, obviously out to a wide audience. And there's a lot of reputation that, that, is behind it as well. You know, the, the television networks don't want to put out polls that are bad or polls that are inconsistent. So there's a lot more um, attention given to sampling. There's a lot more attention given to things like weighting. There's a lot more attention given to where potential bias might come from um, and how to kind of correct for that. And so generally all polling, if it's done by a good institution that does political research, is going to use some of these sophisticated methods to, to make sure that what the sample that they're getting is as representative as possible of the population and their intentions with regards to the, the politics that are going mm -hmm. on. To break that down a little bit, and we've talked about this before, right? The, the, the single biggest thing that's most important to get a really representative sample of anything is how you select that sample. Mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of critical. Uh, and a lot of polling will go to a lot of a lot of kind of links to make sure that everyone who is in the population who are potentially going to vote 
has an equal chance of being selected in the mm-hmm. poll. And that's where you adjust for things like, you know, some groups are much harder to get. Some groups don't answer their phone as much. Some people don't even have phones these days. You know, all of those things make some parts of the population a lot harder to, to access. Mm-hmm. And you need to adjust for that when you're sampling to make sure that parts of the population that typically aren't going to participate, that they, they have a slightly higher chance of getting into the pot, so to speak. Because you you know that you want them to participate in in representative kind of numbers, mm-hmm. right? So adjusting for that bias is really important, and that that helps give you a really good sample, like a good representative sample of the population. They sometimes call it stratification sampling and stuff. That's always typically mm-hmm. done, where you break the sample into groups that you know have different response rates, and you try to get those groups in an equal in equal proportions or in the right proportions to to give you kind of a, re- a representative mm-hmm. sample. I think the, the the response rate thing is actually really interesting because I think it might be easy to assume mm. that response rate has to do with the sort of proportion of representation in the population. But that's not what we're talking about with response rate. It's how hard is it to get those people to respond to a poll? Is that right? Yeah. 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 The response rate is simply that everyone that you went out and tried to get in, how many people mm-hmm. actually you know, how many phone numbers were, were real, how many people said, yes, they wanted to participate. You know, like the response rate to a survey is basically, or to a poll is, is, is basically mm-hmm. that. But you are trying to, and what you know, though, when you start out and you do a lot of this is that certain groups just don't respond in, in the same way as other groups. It's much easier to get, you know, older people to respond to these polls than as younger people, as an example. So you have to work a lot harder to get more younger people into mm-hmm. your poll uh, because they're not going to respond at the same rate as say someone, you know, someone under 25 is not going to respond at the same rate as someone over 65. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to work harder to get the younger population in and all political polling is, is adjusted for that. It's not just age. It's it, they go to lots mm-hmm. of different layers of, of potential response bias that they, that they, that they try to correct yeah. for. One thing I'd love for yeah. us to do is, um, and I'm going to reach out to someone I, interviewed for the other show in the demo from from Pew Research, Kim yep. Parker, um, about introducing me to some folks who've been working on this question of political polling methodologies, because they've got some interesting pieces up right. on their site about pollsters are now, you know, having to use multiple methods for their studies. Mm. They're having to sample different databases, yeah. use probability panels, use different methods of contact because yep. some people don't answer the phone and some people prefer online polling. And so in order to yep. get people <laughs> into the database, into the responses, you kind of have to flex yeah. to how they behave now. And I think for a while there, we were having these sort of debates about, yeah. is it all phone-based? Is phone-based still the gold standard? Or you know, can we do online polling? And now clearly it looks like two thirds of pollsters are doing some combination of uh, of methods yeah. in order to fill sample. Yeah. I mean, some are fully online, some are fully phone mm-hmm. as well. I think the New York Times when you linked was fully phone. I think so. Yeah. That's an interesting debate is just between the two different methodologies, because I think you get different responses based on the phone versus mm-hmm. online as well. Like people will respond slightly differently. Online polls in particular can be very sensitive to the way information is presented. Phone polls can be very sensitive just to, just to the way the information is is the questions are asked by the by the interviewer mm-hmm. as well. So um, there's lots of methodological issues between those two things. I think that I mean it, it is very different now to when it was when I was doing political polling back in New Zealand. I think New Zealand is, is still a kind of a an outlier. I think in the in the sense that you have a relatively small population that's it's kind of easily accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to do political polling via phone, what they called CATI, computer-aided telephone mm-hmm. interviewing. And, you know, something like 99% of the, of the country was on the phone system and everyone was in the phone book. And you kind of knew everything about the entire setup in the country because there weren't that many people. It, it was very easy to get a good methodology. You know, you, you had response bias and stuff, but it was very easy to account for that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really a difficult, a difficult kind of uh, landscape in mm-hmm. New Zealand. Here, it's much, much different. Yeah, because... The transition away from like, territorial phones, I guess, and mm-hmm. households has really upended um, phone phone polling. They've moved towards mobile phones. The fact that some people, you know, mobile phones are, are way harder to 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 connect to one individual, mm-hmm. and online being so much cheaper and easier and more accessible mm-hmm. to do um, has also kind of folded it into the mix. So it is now. It's a very much. It's a very different landscape compared to what it used yeah. to be. Um, in places like New Zealand and, and probably, you know, 30 years ago in, in the U.S. where phone calling was much more 
of a viable kind of uh, viable way right. to do it. I know we worked on a project where we talked to independent voters um, about a variety of things once. But yeah, um, we, have you been have you been doing U.S. stuff? We have. Yeah, yeah, we've done some political polling stuff, um, but mainly it's been for the the campaign mm-hmm. or people supporting different campaigns of different mm-hmm. candidates in different states and sometimes nationally. Um, so a lot of that has been, you know, I think you you fall back and you use an online panel for that. Or you might use some phone interviews. And you tend to do the basics in terms of, of accounting for all the differences that you might find in responses, but you don't, you don't generally do that research to the same level you would do a poll that was going to be publicly broadcast. So let's, let's talk about that for a second, because I, I think say. that's also a thing yep. that people may not know much about, <laughs> is that there is a difference between right. internal polls, partisan polling firms, and these public polls mm-hmm. that are usually some kind of partnership between a polling firm or a survey, you know, research firm, a like an academic institution and a newspaper right, or, yeah, a, yeah. or a or a news network, something like that. And so you have yep. like the Economist yep. YouGov poll or the New York Times Siena College poll and, and those, those kinds of yep. partnerships yep. happening. The yep. most revealing thing um, that I learned about why these things are different, because, you know, it's very easy to think, well, like I do research, you do research and talking to a pollster. I had the pleasure of talking to Kristen Soltis Anderson and Patrick Ruffini once, and they 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 really emphasized like, look, we have to be super accurate because we're putting these polls out publicly and we're making predictions, yeah. <laughs> and like our reputation yeah. rests on right. was our prediction accurate mm-hmm. or not. And when we're doing mm-hmm. a survey for a consumer packaged goods company, their demands for yeah. accuracy and yeah. predicting are different let's put it that way <laughs> it's not the, it's not the same very different yeah very different i think there's a level yeah there's a level of kind of scrutiny around polling because i think there is kind of this this there's this institution around polling that everybody is looking at the methodologies of different competitors and they're publishing their methodologies and it's much more like an academic ish kind of environment where you, if you publish your poll, you want to publish your methodology, you put it out in the public, it's going to be open to criticism by other polling institutions mm-hmm. to say whether you did this or that. And, and, and I think that's good. Like, I think that's, that keeps polling very honest and accurate. And I think that's a really good thing to do. But that kind of rigor is not demanded for the other types of surveys that we would do mm-hmm. in, in, inside a consumer package goods company, something like that, because you're just not dealing with them. The margins, I mean, the margins of, of error that you're doing with those polls, I mean, just it's not going to make much of a difference. And so when, you know, yeah. so I think. So that, when you're doing internal yeah. work for a campaign or an issue group yeah. or whatever, hmm. um, yeah. is it more like the work we do for our, our more like brand clients? Are they, are they more looking for this kind of strategic direction as opposed to prediction? Are they doing some combination of the two? Talk a bit about that. It's, it's, I think it's more strategic direction. I think a lot of the polling that, that I've done for, for political campaigns has been about, well, what are the issues and why do people care about mm-hmm. the issues and, and how do we craft a message um, around the issues that's going to resonate with people? You know, um, they're not too worried about, I mean, we will do like likely voters and we will do some weighting and we will make sure that the, that the age composition and the ethnic composition, all that kind of stuff is, is correct. But we're typically using like online, you know, online panels or, or some other kind of online research tool where the cost is like a 10th of doing the, the computer aided telephone interviews. And so, and so, you know, and then once you do that, you, you're just, there's not much you can do. I mean, you're just using an online panel. So you, you can't really do a lot in the underlying structure of that panel. You just have to understand and know that the panel you're using is a good panel and you've used it before and you, you trust certain panels and you don't trust other panels. But we're not getting into, we don't, we don't get into all the complexities that say the New York Times would with regards to a t- telephone interview and they're pulling voter files and all right. that kind of stuff and, and doing response bias adjustments and and things, but we might do. Yeah, but we'll definitely look at making sure that the sample is representative. Look at likely voters. We'll make sure that if we get something that skews a little bit, we might do some weights to make sure it's like you know it, it, it looks good. But they're not they're not worried about predicting things. Yeah, they're just far more worried, as you know, about you know how they're going to craft a strategy to talk about issues. Yeah. That- that people are concerned about. Yeah, I mean the way that these things show up for us more is 
there is a matter of public debate or controversy that's relevant to whatever brand I'm working on. <laughs> and we might incorporate a couple right. questions about yeah. how people are feeling about a particular topic. Mm -hmm. The first one of those that really comes yeah. to mind for me is years ago working on one of the HPV vaccines. And so having right. to be sensitive yeah. about the politics of that. But obviously, we did some work with yeah. independent voters. And that was interesting for a variety of reasons. But one is just like the fuzziness of defining what an independent voter really is. And mm. I know that the, the Pew folks kind of feel like there isn't really a lot of independent voters. There are people who aren't registered yeah. with one party yeah. or the other, and they lean one way or the other. And so they functionally are one yeah. way or the other. Yeah, yeah no, there's a really interesting uh, question that we had when I was doing uh, political work back in New Zealand. And I remember this, um, this lady who I used to work with, uh, she was very, um, she was a qualitative researcher, but did a lot of quant as well. But she came up with this idea of, well, I, you know, I think we can push people to figure out what way they lean. And so we had a, a, a layered set of like four questions, which is which, which are you going to vote in New Zealand? It's like labor or, 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 or national, which is conservative mm -hmm. uh, or liberal or conservative. And you'd start off by asking which way you're going to vote. And then, you know, 20%, 30% would say they don't know. And then when you get someone who says, don't know, you ask them, well, okay, if we really had to say, yeah, what would you vote? <laughs> and then if they still say, don't know. We'd be like, okay, then imagine it, you know, in some scenario where they had to choose one or the other. And, and the funny thing was, was that if you went down through that layer of questions or forcing someone to ultimately choose one or the other, you said, don't know. That was the, 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 the set of questions that was most predictive of the outcome mm -hmm. of the election was that if you divided everyone up into the lead, mm -hmm. that that was actually more informative than anything else. So it was kind of, it kind of supports the idea that, yeah, if you if push comes to shove, People do tend to lean one way or the other. Yeah. It's not really independent. So the, the other thing I feel like comes up, especially at this stage of the game, and I think we're going to hear a little, yeah. we're going to hear less and less about this as we get closer to November, is the idea yeah. of most normal people are not paying close attention to the election. No, and yeah. so Absolutely. even if you get them, yeah. you know, so you may have some response bias of people who like they're interested, they're paying attention, they want to respond to a poll yeah. about this. But you also might yes. just have yeah. like, weird answers in there because people aren't they don't know what you're talking about like they're they're not they're not actually yeah. engaged with this yet at all so, so i watched that chris hayes clip mm -hmm. that you sent her and 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 i love watching chris hayes he's great i mean he's one of the best reporters i think on msnbc for doing this kind of stuff because he's always it's always fascinating the, the take he has on things um and puts it in such a such a cool way but um you know he was all like oh this this is 58 percent of people think that donald trump committed crimes etc etc there's one question in that poll that that was like, how close are you following the <laughs> charges around Donald Trump? And that was probably the most informative question I saw in all the crosstabs of, of that New York Times poll. Because only something like 20% or 21% of people said that they're following this a lot. Yep. The next one under that was like, I don't know, it was, it was another 20% or 15 or something was saying that they, they're following it like some a, a little bit or, or, or some of it or something. And this is the problem with some scales we use on polling is people think that oh no we're going to talk about liquor scales <laughs> yeah, no, we're going to talk about scales right i know we're going to get to scales people think that a lot means a lot uh-huh and a lot of the times it really doesn't and it especially doesn't mean a lot if the next point you have is like sometimes because mm -hmm. sometimes there's almost nothing and then you've got almost nothing and so what I, what I looked at that scale, I thought, okay, then what's really happening here is probably only like 10% of people are really following what's happening mm -hmm. with Donald Trump and have any kind of idea about, about the details of what he's been charged with and why. And most people are simply just gathering a bit of information, you know, by osmosis as they, as they go around their general day, but they're not really following it closely at all. Um, and I think this is the reason it's so difficult for some pundits like Chris Hayes to talk about this stuff because he always comes from a perspective of massive amount of knowledge about what's going mm -hmm. on and can't understand the polling from his perspective. Yeah. And, and it's really hard to step back and forget everything he knows <laughs> about Donald Trump and, and the charges and imagine that he's just some normal citizen going by and, you know, Donald Trump's out there and yeah, there's some charges. I don't know what they're about, but yeah, he might be good. He might not. And someone that really doesn't yeah. care. Right. So that most people are like mm -hmm. that. This is the hard thing, and and this this trans this transfers to brands as well. I mean, if you do these surveys as we do for consumer brands, most people don't care about your brand. Mm -hmm. Like they don't really know what's going on. Yes, <laughs> and they don't they haven't seen all of your messages. 
And it's really hard for marketers to get into the mindset of someone that doesn't know a lot about what they're doing because they're so much in the middle yes. of it all, right? And they just kind of have this like belief that everyone knows everything about what they're trying to do and accomplish and stuff yes. like that. So I think that happens a little bit with, with journalists and pundits and political polls. It's like, it's like most people just aren't following closely. And that's, that's why there's a huge yeah. kind of mismatch between what they think and what that, polls show. That, the, the last two questions actually in the, as you scroll down to the New York Times Santa poll, and we'll, we'll put the link mm. to the crosstabs and the eventual show notes once this actually gets edited and published. Right. But the question is, how much attention right. would you say you are paying to news about the legal cases against Donald Trump? And it, your choice was a lot of attention, some attention, only a little attention, mm. no attention at all. Don't know. Um, so, you know, taken together, the only a little attention and no attention at all, about 28% said only a little attention, 19% said no attention at all. So let's go ahead and call that 50% of the sample said, I don't know, yeah. I'm not really paying yeah. attention to this. And the other 50% says they're paying at least some attention, right? So and well, like I a think, third of them I are saying the some, like the, 20% are saying a lot, but to your point, what's a yeah. lot? Yeah. And, you know, I, no, I, I was it, talking to someone yeah. about, there's a piece in the journal from a couple of weeks ago about from a political scientist at Berkeley who had done a survey of 250 college students asking them about some of their attitudes towards Israel yeah. and Hamas. And um, and some yeah. like large percentage of them when first asked about the statement from the river to the sea so that they generally agreed with that statement. And then as they got exposed to yeah. more kind of facts about the conflict, they backed away from their support of that statement. Right. And so, like, the lesson here is, well, the more you know, <laughs> I guess, right? Um, right. But yeah. the other thing is, right. like, the question here is not then, well, how come these these kids are going out and protesting? The question is, like, how much do they really know about any of these things when exposed to them? And yeah. so, like, on yeah. you're asking me to register an opinion. Here's my opinion. Then you come back and ask me at the end of the yeah. survey, how much are you paying attention? And the answer is, like, I don't know, a little bit. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, and I th right. exactly, yeah. exactly, and in the same way, if the survey had a whole lot of facts about the cases against Donald Trump, and you asked people whether or not they thought these were true or false, mm -hmm. I guarantee you, I bet my life and the life of all of my family. Wow, the fact that, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, this is just a sure thing that. A lot of people, a good 50% of people said, I'm paying a lot of attention, wouldn't know the majority of the basic facts about mm -hmm. the cases. And that happens yeah. all the time. Because our, our assessment of how much we know about something is always overinflated yes. in these kinds of polls, I think, and this kind of survey yes. in general. And this know? is, the, you know, the, the example I gave <laughs> to someone the, uh, this morning was years and years ago, I worked on um, Microsoft Zune. <laughs> and I'm sure I've told this story before to you. I don't want to admit that. <laughs> well, I remember when you were yeah, working on I mean, I, I, yeah. I do feel like I played a small yeah. role in killing it. Um, and so so I, I, I feel okay. okay about my role. Um, <laughs> but the mm -hmm. in the focus groups, we were talking to people about, you know, MP3 players and downloading music and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and asking them about mm -hmm. features. And the Zune had a bunch of features mm -hmm. the iPod did not have and never had. Um, so it had a FM radio. Yep. You could wirelessly transmit MP3s between Zune players. So if you happen to know yep. someone who had a Zune... <laughs> You were in luck. Right. <laughs> but yeah. when we asked people about these features, everyone in the groups was dead certain that the iPod could do it. Well, that's the iPod has yeah. that. The iPod has that. And it was like, does mm. it? And ultimately, we just concluded like they, their, their pre-existing mm. belief is that the best in class MP3 mm. player is the iPod. Any feature Microsoft's yes. going to bother to throw onto that thing the iPod obviously yeah, we'll have, has. Yeah. And so like, I don't mm -hmm. need to evaluate it and you don't need to convince me. I'm just not really yep. interested. I don't care that much about you yes. to change my mind about you. And so if you're telling me you have yep. better stuff, well, I think the iPod already has it. And what's funny is the question yep. after the how much attention question listed here is thinking generally about all the criminal cases against Donald Trump, which comes closer to your view, even if neither is exactly right. The charges against Donald Trump are mostly politically motivated. 46%. Mm. Donald Trump was charged mostly because yep. prosecutors believed he committed crimes, 48%. Now, don't get me started yep. on the formation of those two statements, but the, because <laughs> I'm not sure that like prosecutors yeah. believed he committed crimes is different than being politically motivated in the minds of some people. Right. But let's stipulate yes, that maybe no, it is. Yeah. It's even like, here's one where like we could start to describe something about the 
about this situation. And it's an mm. even split, even though up top people are like, yeah, he committed crimes. <laughs> he, he committed crimes. Yeah. Yeah. No, you don't, it doesn't make any sense. Like, like, and it's interesting. I mean, this is a thing that I, I don't like this type of reporting for research. Mm. And I don't like it for, for what I do for, for, for clients that, that do this type of research. And I don't really like it for political polling either, because I think it's like, I have this saying that I use, and I've told you this, I think, I think I made it up, but I might've stolen it somewhere. I can't remember. But it's like, if you look at how a, say a hundred people answer a single question, that is not as interesting as how one person answered 10 questions. Mm. And, and this goes back to, so, so you can always come up with a number that is like 46% or 50% of what any question you kind of ask, but it's all the questions prior to that question and after that question that an individual asked in a certain mm -hmm. way that makes their response to that question interesting. Yes. And that is completely lost when you just look at it, the answers to any single question in yeah. total. Okay. So you don't really can't understand like that, that question about, you know, was it political matter or, or not? Unless you start to look at it by the, the political party and what they know and don't know and their, their support or not support of Trump and all that kind of stuff. Once you start to look at it like that, those things will start to make more sense. But as one result, I think it's just, it's inconsequential. And then you see journalists say, oh, well, this says this. And they start to make all these assumptions about why that might be right here, but something else over here does or doesn't support it. And it's like, no, because the original bit of reporting of that doesn't, it's just, it's just not a useful outcome. Like you can't really understand it in isolation. Yeah and not take into account how people are coming into that question and how they answered everything else in yeah. the survey. Well, and, and that's what's so, interesting with the yeah. second survey that he had in, in that segment, and we'll link to the Chris Hayes segment also, but the the YouGov poll, yeah. which was of, of just shy of 3,500 U.S. adults, so not necessarily likely voters or yeah. even registered voters, but adults. Yeah. The question is, do you approve or disapprove of the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that Donald Trump can't appear on the state's 2024 Republican presidential primary ballot because his actions leading up to the January 6, 2021 takeover yeah. of the Capitol amount to insurrection or rebellion against the United States? So that's a mouthful. Um, yeah. But what he kind of looked at in the segment was the rolled up numbers, right? So the the all adults, all you know, all respondents who answered yeah. Um, what their answers were. Strongly approved 38%, somewhat approved 16%. So there you can round it up and say 54% yeah. are, you know, at least somewhat approve of the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. Yeah. Now, if you, you know, click on the politics tab <laughs> underneath the question, yeah. then it's... the strongly approved group becomes very interesting because 63% of Democrats strongly approve, 12% of Republicans strongly approve of the Colorado yes. Supreme Court ruling. Yep. And yet, and this happens a lot, yep. right? When you start to see like taken yep. together, you know, top two box answers on something taken together is yep. 50 plus percent. The press tends to report mm. that as a widely shared belief of the public. Yes. But it's it's not. not because it's yeah. not evenly distributed, no. right? Partisan. It's it's yes, like exactly. over here yeah, is exactly. a widely shared belief. Over here, it is not, and um, and the yes. you know the opposite yeah. is true. In fact, when you then look at the strongly disapproved numbers, it's a it's kind of an inversion. It's three percent of even even worse. It's like three yeah. percent of Democrats strongly disapprove, fifty eight percent of Republicans yeah. strongly disapprove, and and that's the better reporting of it because the, all that all of that all that question is doing is correlating with your support for your mm -hmm. for the party. Right. That's that's all it's doing. It's a it's an internal correlation between do you see yourself as a Democrat or Republican and do you support Colorado's decision or not against Trump? Mm -hmm. It's like that's not surprising. Yes. <laughs> Democrats agree with it and Republicans don't. And, and and that's that's the way it should be reported, I think, because that's that's the that's the reality yeah. of it. It's simply just a correlation with party party association. Which I think a lot of this mm -hmm. stuff is. There's so much of the stuff that's reported is simply just a correlation with party association. You don't. Sometimes they will break it down by Democrats and Republicans, and I think that's the less the less exciting journalism yeah. when they break it down and they say, "Oh, well, Democrats kind of think this, and Republicans think that." It's easy, as you say, to to say, "Oh, the the population thinks this, and that's interesting because there's all the support for Donald Trump." And where's that coming from? Well, it's just 
party yeah. affiliation that, that is driving and, all this. And I definitely want to want to talk more at a, at a, on another conversation about this concept of expressive mm. responding versus just kind of being misinformed. Because I think one of the other things that happens in polls that are public is what you know questions that can kind of strike you as either there's kind of two categories I think of here. One is the pop quiz question. It's like that's a verifiable mm. fact yep. whether something happened or didn't happen. And, and it's kind of like why yeah. are we asking people this this factual question that can be verified? It's not really a matter yeah. of opinion. And the second one is right. the prediction question. So so one of the other questions you got asked in that same December 20th sort of flash poll was, mm. if the U.S. Supreme Court were to review the Colorado High Court's decision, do you think it would uphold the decision, reverse the decision? Not not sure. So this is weird. Like we're, we're asking average people to make a prediction yeah. about yeah. what the United States Supreme Court will do about a Colorado Supreme Court yeah. decision. And like I went to law school and I'm not sure what they're going to do. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, the question is, what's interesting is, again, 43% say reverse the decision, 23% uphold, 34% say they don't know, which I, I want to just pause here and applaud the 34% for saying they don't know, because that's mm. an honest answer. <laughs> right? And everything right. else it's, uh, it's the only is, answer, is yeah. doing something yeah. else. So again, if I look at it by by political persuasion, the Democrats are, you know, pretty pessimistic. <laughs> They're pretty evenly split, uphold, reverse, mm. not sure, 34, 34, 32 the Republicans, 58% mm. of them think they'll reverse the decision. That's yep. interesting. But that's not how that got rolled up and reported either. It was more just like, no, what's the total right. number? Well, the plurality say they'll reverse the decision. But again, these are, you know, this is this concept of ex expressive responding of, I'm a Republican. Mm. I think the court is Republican. And so they will overturn yeah. this thing and they better because I want my guy to be on the ballot. Mm. Um, and so like you have to, I, I love, you know, that you brought up the how close of attention question because it colors everything else. <laughs> like all the other answers in, in the survey are kind of yeah. modified by that question. And if you don't address that when you're talking yes. about it, it's a distorted representation of what the survey actually says. It completely is. I agree. Yeah, it really is. And and this is where you have kind of made up information, I think. Or well, stories that are made up based on information that misrepresents mm -hmm. what people actually think. Because if, if I'm asking a whole bunch of questions about, if you have any topic that I don't know much about and ask me a whole bunch of questions about, I don't know, bridge construction <laughs> or something, and you want me to give my opinion and I gave it to you, and then you make up some kind of story about about like how bridges are constructed you're going to get it completely wrong because i'm not an expert in any of that no. stuff <laughs> Me either. Um, and most people aren't experts in any of these politics so most of what you can conclude from this is just kind of generally how people feel if push comes to shove when you ask them about certain you know situations with regards to trump but um they could completely change their mind mm -hmm. if they were actually exposed to real facts and real information and more de in-depth mm -hmm. information um, and which they likely might be as they get closer to an election when people are usually much more attentive of, of what's yeah. going on. Well, and, and when they're just being inundated more with more political advertising, with yeah. more outreach from campaigns, with right. more news stories, all exactly. of that. Yeah. Because Iowa's coming up shortly. <laughs> mm. um, one of the things right. that I have been um, sort of ambiently aware of for a while is that there is one pollster in Iowa that the other pollsters love. And that the mm. political pundit class okay. love. And that's Ann Seltzer. Mm -hmm. She works on what is known as the Iowa poll. There are other polls conducted in Iowa. There was a Suffolk University one or something that just came out the other day. But mm -hmm. she's regarded as this sort of gold standard pollster in Iowa. Mm. Obviously, on like the 538 website, they grade the various pollsters. They also mark the ones that are partisan, nonpartisan. Um, Seltzer is nonpartisan. Yep. I think currently that is a partnership with NBC and uh, the Des Moines Register and Mediacom are the mm -hmm. are essentially the co collaborators slash funders yep. of the of the of the yep. survey itself. But do you have a sense of what makes one pollster better than another pollster? Besides just like, on average, they're more accurate. <laughs> is, that, is that the thing? Is that the thing that makes them? <laughs> it's after the fact. We can say that they're the gold standard because yeah, they're so the good. Fact. It's interesting. What would make one pollster better than another? I, th I think that 
I think their kind of adherence to the rules of polling, like I think that is important when you're doing polling, like like the extent to which you are going out of your way to make sure you can select a really good representative sample. Like I would put that probably at the top of the skills you need to be a really good pollster. Everything else will kind of like collapse if you don't make sure you are getting um, the most representative sample as possible. So definitely put that as number mm-hmm. one. Um, and I can't speak to to... Like, I have no idea what she does for her polling, but that would be the first thing I'd kind of look at. I think the second thing I'd look at would be the consistency or the historical kind of like legacy of po- the person doing the polling. Like, like, have they done this for a long time? Um, have they maintained the same methodology for a long time? Mm. Because one of the other things that you can also kind of be sure of is that while there's lots of different ways to conduct a poll and different ways to make sure you're getting good samples. If you're doing the same thing over and over again, the errors that you make are baked into every single result mm-hmm. you've got, which means that you're, the errors are already part of the historical record of what you've been measuring. And therefore, there's a good chance that things that are, you know, that you can compare your current result to the historical and you can see the way things are moving and that the, the way things are moving aren't because of methodological changes that you're making to your polling. Because as soon as you adjust your methodology in any way, there's a good chance that might affect the results. So if you've kept the same methodology right from the start and you've been very consistent, then I think that is the sign of probably that you've got a pretty good handle on what's mm-hmm. happening in the region that you're polling. And that seems to be the thing when, when, when she's yeah. asked about you know, what she thinks is essential to good polling. A lot of it is how the yeah. sample is drawn. I was re- reading, right. I think it must have been the 538 piece about her. And when she first came to the Des Moines Register, they were turning around polls faster by recontacting people they had previously polled instead of getting mm. new sample. And so like sample, the, right. the recontacts were skewing for, I don't know, George Bush and the new contacts were skewing mm. for Bob Dole. And she was like, Mm-mm. I don't know. I think you're missing something here because the people we've called before right. are saying yeah, yeah. this and the people we've never called before are saying something mm. else entirely. So we need to think about sample differently. Um, and so that it's seems totally, to be, yeah. You know, a big part of how um, how she thinks about what she's doing. It's interesting because I think there is then this almost kind of hagiography that's inevitable when you're a really accurate pollster. I mean, this you know more or less happened to Nate Silver, um, which is it's still very strange. I think one thing to say about Nate Silver is not a pollster, also no longer at five thirty eight, but not a pollster. Yeah, he's no. a guy who's like doing sabermetrics with polling data that's publicly yeah. available. Polling data, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, he's yeah. looking at all yeah. these polls and doing some averages and saying, like, these are the odds I give for any given candidate or issue or whatever. And, I mean, mostly yes. candidates. Yes. And so, like, the idea that a prediction was made by 538 is, you know, in 2016, for mm. example, is technically inaccurate. They did not make a prediction. They laid odds on one side winning yes. or another. right. But because yeah. the odds... Yeah worked out a bunch of times <laughs> um yeah. uh not in 2016 but that's okay they they got to you know he came to be um you know successfully predicted all 50 states or whatever or 49 states um mm-hmm. in terms of how their votes would turn out on general election night 2012 that's yeah. that then becomes like that's your credential in this space, which is very, again, when I, when yeah. I talked to um, Patrick and, and Kristen about this, I was like, aha, the difference between what you do and what I do is it all comes down to the one night that everybody makes their purchase decision. <laughs> and I work on stuff where people are constantly making purchase decisions. So I don't, I don't have to make a prediction about what someone's going to do on Tuesday because they've still got Wednesday, Thursday, no. Friday, and into next week to make their choice. <laughs> like we're not, right. we're not running on the right. same timelines yeah, yeah, here. Yeah. It is interesting though, that like when they start to dig under, well, what is it that Ann Seltzer does that's so great? Like, she just constructs really good sample and doesn't try to, like, mm. make the data say something that yeah. it doesn't say. Exactly, yeah. No, exactly. That's exactly right. So it's interesting you mentioned Nate Silver because I think that what he does is really important for political polling. I think that's a really powerful way to mm-hmm. do it when you start taking hundreds of polls and average them up and have a look at where that average sits is a good chance you're tracking the reality of what's going on because you're, you're essentially, you know, 
each poll is contributing a little bit to it, the overall end result, not, and not entirely. And each poll has their own kind of issues and biases in it. So those kind of cancel out a little bit when you take the average of lots of polls. So I think that's a really, that's a really interesting way to approach it. And it's kind of a layer above polling Mm -hmm. that, that is, you know, that, that at the end of the day, the most accurate way to get a, uh, an understanding of what's going on is to actually take multiple samples Mm -hmm. of something. If you, if you can, right. Or, or, or lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of samples. Um, and the more you sample you take, the better prediction you're going to be. So the, the more polls you'd make, the better you're going to be at predicting what's going on if you average all those results together. It's just basic statistics. So I think what he's doing is really valuable. And, and, and I think really probably the most powerful way to think about polling and to track it is looking at how the averages of all the polls evolve mm-hmm. over time. I think uh, another thing that we'll just, you know, say as well about apparently Seltzer's approach, which is something that I'm trying to incorporate more in just how we screen people to participate in qualitative studies, which is we may disqualify right. people to participate, but we don't terminate their progress through the screening survey, that they take the whole right. screener. And then we can learn about the people who didn't qualify as well as the people who did. And, you know, sort of the traditional way of recruiting qualitative respondents is you're walking through the mall one day, someone with a clipboard comes up to you. They ask you if you'd like to participate in some market research. They ask you a bunch of questions. They get your contact details. Now you're in a database. And then I call up a firm who has that, you know, the firm that has that database and they call you on the phone and ask you a bunch of questions and then qualify you. And they have incentives to get off the phone as quickly as possible because they're trying to keep their Mm. contact costs down. But yep. these days Down, we're yep, using, yep. you know, um, often we're using customer lists, but we're also using panels like user interviews or respondent or survey monkey or whatever. And yeah. in those instances, it doesn't cost me more to have everybody go through the screener than to only have the people that we know for mm-hmm. sure will qualify go through the screener. But apparently she does basically this, which is that she takes the voter file. She asks mm-hmm. a bunch of questions to see if they're likely to attend a caucus only about one in five Iowans mm-hmm. do or registered voters do. Mm-hmm. They are asked who they caucus for, but she collects data on everyone, not just the ones who say they will caucus. And so she's able to look mm-hmm. at like all the registered voters plus the people who say they're going to caucus mm-hmm. and know for sure who they're going to caucus for. And, and in my guess is if you're asking the question of who you're going to caucus for, you are, you're a sure thing, right? Like if you've already decided that you're going to caucus for Nikki Haley, then you're going to do that yeah. at least to begin with, right? There's a whole different, we can mm-hmm. talk about how caucuses work, I guess, <laughs> if we really wanted to, though I, don't, I think that might be someone else's right. topic, not ours. Right. But like, that's an interesting yeah. choice yeah. that she's making, which is collecting data on all the people she contacts, not just the ones who say they're going to participate. And then she can do mm-hmm. some weighting based on those essentially like response rates and representation, like age, mm-hmm. sex, congressional district, mm-hmm. et cetera. But apparently mm-hmm. she does not wait by past caucus or general election voting activity because she doesn't want to make too many assumptions about who's likely to caucus this time. Yeah. Probably smart. Yeah. 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 I think it's it's interesting to yeah. think about some of those things because in the meantime, there's a lot of fretting about mm. waiting and mm. sampling and did we get enough of these people and what what kind of math are we using to get a readable yeah. answer versus method yeah and the, and the weighting stuff's interesting because there's two different ways in which you will wait i mean one of one one way you might wait is if you were doing your sampling and you didn't get quite as many black americans mm-hmm. that you wanted uh or your hispanic number was slightly too high you will weight those groups down a little bit or up a little bit depending on what what representation you want in the in the survey, right? That's just that's just demographic weighting to make sure that your sample. Is and so weighting just means like if we were, you know, if we if we want a value of one, but we got you know point eight, then we multiply it to get to one. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just get it back up to the proportion that you know it mm-hmm. should be that you were taking targeting, right? If you ask a question about uh, who are you going to vote for, then you can make some assumptions about how accurate someone's answer is going to be based on their past behavior. Mm-hmm. So if someone had voted in the last four elections and said they did, right, then the person who voted in the past four elections is, and, and maybe is going to caucus in Iowa or something like that, you know, you can 
ask them a bunch of questions about their past behavior, you can say, okay, that person's probably more likely to vote coming up than someone who maybe just turned 18 and said, yeah, I'm going to vote, but hasn't had mm-hmm. any history. So you might decide to weight that person's answer a little bit higher because you think on the actual day of the election, that person's more likely to turn out than someone who says they're going to, but has no past history or behavior of actually mm-hmm. voting or a very weak past behavior of voting, right? So that's, that's such a judgment call, mm-hmm. though. And you have to back that up with a pretty good kind of logical argument as to why you would do that kind of waiting. But that waiting is done, I know, for, for lots of, uh, you know, lots of questions or throughout the voting. Well, procedure. and I think it's, you know, the, the analogy in other kinds of work we do is the, you know, the, well, this isn't the target audience, <laughs> you know, kind of bias yeah, of clients right. where they're like, well, they're not saying what I expected them to say yeah. or they don't perfectly fit the criteria I had in mind, even though they fit the criteria we agreed mm. to. And, and that happens a lot. But I think yep. the interesting thing there is if what you're trying to do, if, if like you're, you're maximizing towards the actual ultimate electorate and trying to model yeah. the actual ultimate electorate, that it's not unreasonable to think that the next electorate will be the last electorate, that the people who voted last time will likely vote it's again. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, we'll do exactly, that. Yeah. Except, apparently, when APOR did the um, <laughs> the analysis of 2016, one of the huge components of Trump's success electorally was people who had never voted mm. before or who hadn't voted in a long time. And that's exactly where yep. it breaks down. Is that any event could happen up and close to the election that might completely change the assumptions you had about who's mm-hmm. going to vote? Um, it could be a you know a, an, an attack on the U.S. Suddenly, you know, yeah, everyone's out voting because now there's some completely the whole reason for the election has changed, has shifted. I mean, anything could happen. Any big mm-hmm. event could shift that assumption close in, and that's why it's it's it it can be dangerous to make that assumption as well. But generally. Over the long period of time, over the long haul, that's going to be correct. The, the electric that votes now is probably similar to the electric that votes that voted last time, but there will be exceptions yeah. to that. So if if, if yeah. you were trying to put your layperson's hat on, what, what do you think the average person would find most confusing about how to think about polls? I think the average person who just kind of, you know, encounters a poll in any kind of bit of news I think they probably tend to think that that's what the outcome is going to be, mm-hmm. like that, that somehow the poll is predicting what's going to mm-hmm. happen, you know. And I, I, I think that's probably that's not right, <laughs> but that that could be necessary for a democracy because if you think Trump is winning, you know, the polling could have an effect on how, how and if you're an anti-Trump supporter, that, that could have an effect on how much you're going to participate, right, and how mm-hmm. much you're going to campaign and how much you're worried about about mm-hmm. stuff. So, so those polls can definitely play a play a, uh, a role but i think people tend to interpret them as like oh this is going to happen when really that that's not that's probably mm-hmm. not the case i get a, you get a general a, a general kind of perception that people think people who know a lot about politics think everyone else is also informed mm-hmm. yep you know like <laughs> and that and you have to force yourself not to think that way so if you're really into politics and you're like a diehard liberal and it's like you hate trump and you see these polls it's like oh how can everyone support trump they must be like you know, there must be aliens. There must be, you know, people that must be awful. There must just be, but some people are supporting Trump. They just don't really know what's going on. And they haven't had a lot. I mean, Trump to them is still the guy on the freaking um, The Apprentice. Uh, whatever <laughs> yeah. show he was on. Yeah, the yeah, Apprentice, yeah. you know. And he got into politics and some stuff happened to him and it's left, right, and it's Democrats and this and that. And, and you know, but he's upending the system and you don't like the federal government anyway. Right. And so you're kind of a mm-hmm. Trump supporter. And that's through the extent to which you kind of really understand what's going on. You know, you're not like a bad person who agrees with everything that Trump has done. So I think that's the other thing that, that can be destructive, mm-hmm. I think, is that if you really like, because Trump is so, is so divisive, if you're on the left and you see polls, you can think that there's a bigger gap that is happening between you and the rest of the yeah. country who, who wants to vote for this person. Then there actually is. Then I don't think that gap exists as much. I think most people who are Trump haters could sit down with people who support Trump and realize that, oh, these are nice people. They're interesting. They're just not paying much right. attention. And they have a completely different concept of what Trump is compared to me. Yeah. I think we're in this weird situation because of who Trump is. Polls can create the sense that the whole country has been driven apart with this massive divide. And I think a lot of it is just a divide on attention being paid to. That's what I'm saying. I think that's right. I, and, and I think one of the indicators of that, a 
plug she does not require from me is um, there's a podcast called the Focus Group Podcast um, <laughs> that the Bulwark puts out that Sarah Longwell hosts, and. It's great because I think there's, especially like last year coming into this first half of the year, uh, I mean, obviously I have Mm. a bias, I'm a qualitative researcher, but like, I'd rather hear focus groups talking about this than read poll results talking about this. And one of the things that she's kind of consistently heard, I mean, I think we'll start to see that shift as the first few primaries happen. But there are a lot of people in her groups who are like, are we sure it's Trump and Biden? Like, we haven't had any primaries yet. <laughs> like, right. And it's like, yeah. we're pretty right. sure. <laughs> we're, we're pretty sure it's Trump and Biden. But that's, right. but, you know, also yeah. uh, anything could happen, you know, but there is this kind of, mm. how can we know for before the season really begins, who's already mm. won the pennant? Like, that's, that's a little weird. And so a lot of people who are mm. not high information voters, as they say, or like deeply engaged in the news Mm. are kind of, you know, still in this holding pattern, waiting to see what their real choices Mm. end up being. And and I think there is something kind of interesting that's happened, which I, I think like there is some kind of we all have broken brains from the last several years. But the, I think there's this interesting kind of two bases for not trusting polls. And and one is it does, they don't say what you want them to say. And the other is that if you're a bit more of a nerd about it, you like, you know, like I said, there there was a piece in the journal or something a, few, like a month or two ago that was complaining about the use of waiting in political surveys and mm. talking about it as this like new thing that was making polls less reliable. Mm. And it's not a new thing. Mm. And it's a pretty standard thing in survey research <laughs> and, and how to yeah. handle sample. And so you know, to your point about these things get published, we can see your methodology, we can, you know, see the cross tabs. Amateur armchair poll readers um, get to take mm. to social media to complain about what they think are methodological flaws in the research that may or may not be like, you know, sometimes yeah. they are. Sometimes they're just sort of mm. normal ways of doing things. And this is their theory of the case about what the electorate's going to yep. look like. And obviously, like, we can go into uh, on another conversation also, like how questions are even phrased and how that affects the way that people mm. respond to questions. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, and then the, yeah. the type of questions, scaled yeah. questions versus forced choice versus multi-selects, yeah. all of those kinds of things influence how people respond. And the order of questions yes. has a huge impact. I mean, just working in this in this area and, and seeing the result of just shifting in the order of questions on a survey could completely change yeah. the outcome. Well, and going uh, back and so that's to that New York Times Siena poll, I'm going to assume that they reported it out in the order more or less that they asked the questions because it looks about like what the what it would be. I, I, yeah, I'd assume they were asking. Yeah, and if right, that's yeah. the case, I mean, you don't, you know, you, you, if you wanted to, if you wanted to change the outcome of that, you would just start, you'd ask all the questions about criminal intent and criminal issues with Trump prior mm-hmm. to the question about who you're going right. to vote. <laughs> And I guarantee you, if you did that, you would actually drop Trump support by probably 10 points um, because suddenly people would remember yeah. that before they actually, well, you know, so that, that, that's a huge Exactly. And I think difference. that question even about how much are you paying attention to this, if you'd opened the conversation with that, I wonder, like, does that create a permission structure to say, I don't know more? Yeah, I don't know. It totally does. I mean, I would be fascinated to see some of these companies do one poll that they've already done. And do another poll where they just completely change the order of everything and start off with, yeah, how much are you paying attention? Are you aware Trump is, you know, indicted for this, 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 this? And at the very end of it all, ask who you're going to vote mm-hmm. for and see what difference there is. Because they think that you're going to show that information, even delivered in a survey, can have a big impact on someone's mm-hmm. intention around who they're going to vote for. Yeah. That would just be a fascinating thing. I've never seen anyone do that, but that would be a fascinating thing. Mm, maybe we should it. get someone to give us money and we can try it. We should totally do that. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll start working on that. Maybe that can be a, a cross tab episode with an Ooh. actual like real cross tab data. That would we be can, fun. We can just, throw it just to like show the order of political polling. Yeah, questions. I mean, yeah. and I think this these are exactly the kinds mm. of things that I want to kind of demystify. Obviously, look, if you're right. if you're going to like say to yourself, I want to subscribe to a show called Cross Tabs, um, you're probably a news right. junkie and a politics addict. Yeah. But you may not know a lot about how polling works. <laughs> and so part of what I right. wanted to do with this was, can we just like get under the hood of like, how does this machine actually operate? And like, if I move this thing yeah. over here, does it 
does it change the way it works? And um, and the answer is yeah. 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 There's a, so well, many variables. So yeah. it would be cool to do one of our own. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we can kind of keep digging underneath the, the kind of elements that make up a, a poll. Yeah. And I think another time it would be good to maybe get someone to talk to us about what does it mean to rely on a poll? And why would a voter mm-hmm. rely on a poll? I understand why a campaign would, rely but I don't understand why a, just yeah. folks would. Um, you should... right. Like your mm. vote is your opportunity to express it, your interests as a citizen. Yes. Yeah. What difference does it make? <laughs> what everybody else is saying. Right. Then again, I have certain personality yeah. inclinations to not care what other people think, which is funny because I ask people what they think for a living. Who knew? Um, <laughs> it's, it's a mystery. A mystery. I don't really yeah. care, but I'm I curious. Like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But you're curious. That's well, right. Paul, thank you for uh, chatting with yeah. me. This is this is a little experiment we'll see how it goes Mm -hmm. all right right. sounds good cool i'm in cross tabs is hosted by me farah bostic with paul soldera production by the difference engine and edited by me music from audio jungle by s audio find us at crosstabspodcast.com where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter and find out immediately when new episodes drop Tell your friends about the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast service, drop us a note if you have any questions about poll design or sampling or waiting or anything else, and we'll see you next time.